Welcome to Off the Record. I'm your host, Marika, and I'm a dietitian, nutritionist, and recovering perfectionist. Join me each week as I bring you raw and real conversations with inspiring men and women discussing matters in health and nutrition that are often swept under the rug. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a cup of coffee or a wine, and enjoy learning from conversations that help us to understand the messiness of what it means to be a healthy and balanced human. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today's episode, I am going into my journey with celiac disease and also just talking a little bit about celiac disease in general. So this episode is great if you have been on the celiac journey yourself. So if you are a celiac or if you've got a family member or a friend who is celiac, um, or if you just want to know more about my experience with celiac disease, because it was pretty shit for a while there. Um, so I'll be going into a little bit of information about what is celiac disease, how does the diagnosis happen, what is the treatment, um, and some of the symptoms and sort of long-term effects as well. Um, and like I said, my story all mixed in with that. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, it is obviously a solo one, just me. Um, and yeah, I'm going to get in. So I was diagnosed with celiac disease when I was I'm going to say 17 years old. I think it was just before my 18th birthday. And I am actually super happy that I got diagnosed then because I don't know what being a child with celiac disease would have been like. And I can't imagine, I mean, I think it would be better now, but I can't imagine at that point in time, like in the nineties growing up with celiac disease as a kid, like going to parties and those sorts of things where food allergies and intolerances were really not that common. Like aside from, you know, your peanut allergies, parties were free for all. So (laughs) I am very fortunate that I was diagnosed at the age of 17 instead of at the age of seven. Um, even though my symptoms were pretty horrendous at that point in time. So before I get into my experience, I just wanted to, for those that may not have heard much about celiac disease, give a really brief explanation of what it is. So celiac disease is different to allergies and intolerances. It's actually an autoimmune disease. So um, it's the way that the body responds when you eat gluten is quite different to the way the body responds when somebody with, say, a peanut allergy eats peanuts. And the way that that happens is that the immune system attacks itself essentially when a celiac person eats um, or a person with celiac disease, I should say, um, eats eats gluten. Uh, And gluten is found in wheat, rye, barley, and oats is questionable. Um, I'm not going to go into the oat controversy in this episode. I do have a really detailed post on it on my Instagram. Um, It's really clear the post that it is. You just have to scroll back a little bit, not too far. Uh, and it's labeled as oats and celiac disease. So please, if you want to know more about that, head to my Instagram at Marika Day. Um, what was I saying? Yes. So it's found in wheat, rye, barley, and let's just say oats for the point of this discussion. Uh, and when you consume gluten, which is the protein component of the wheat, rye, barley, and oats, it causes this small bowel damage. So it's actually doing damage in the small intestines. Um, and I guess the other way to sort of look at that is that like in 
uh, gluten sensitivity where somebody is intolerant to gluten, there's no damage being done to the bowel. Whereas in celiac disease, the immune system starts attacking itself and starts to essentially degrade the lining of the small intestines. So the way that it degrades the lining of the small intestines is that in the small intestines, we have these tiny finger-like projections which line the small bowel. They are called the villi. And in celiac disease, when you consume gluten, these villi become inflamed and actually flatten. So you have less of the finger-like protrusion. So if you imagine your fingers and like the length of them, how they are now, your small bowel is covered in these little finger-like projections. And the reason that we have them is to increase the surface area for nutrient absorption. So if you think about like, you know, the surface area of skin on your fingers is much greater if you had fingers. If you don't have any fingers, there's no, not nowhere near as much surface area. And the surface area is where all of our nutrients get absorbed. So in celiac disease, it's like the fingers get shortened really, um, or can just erode altogether um, and become quite completely flat. And this is what you'll see on a small bowel biopsy um, when you get them done. And we'll talk about that diagnosis process. Um, but this is referred to as villus atrophy. And so what it is doing is reducing that surface area, which means that nutrient absorption is much poorer um, and we'll go into the symptoms, but that's why some of the symptoms are around um, low levels of nutrients in your blood. Um, obviously this can cause gastrointestinal symptoms and malabsorptive symptoms as well. So I think the really important thing to know about celiac disease is that one, it's not an allergy or an intolerance. It's an autoimmune disease. Um, and it also is doing damage to the small bowel when you are consuming gluten. Now, this is when you stop consuming gluten, it um, does repair itself, which is the really fortunate thing. And I'll go into that when we speak more about the treatment. So celiac disease was once thought um, a disease where you got diagnosed as a child and you really couldn't get diagnosed after that because you would know about it and you can't develop it later in life is what people used to think. Um, but you certainly can develop it at any point in your life and you can get diagnosed at any point in your life. So you could get diagnosed at the age of four or you could get diagnosed at the age of 40 or you could get diagnosed at the age of 80. Um, that is definitely something that I think is still a bit of a misconception in, um, in this space is that, you know, a lot of people think, well, I didn't, I've been tested for it before and I didn't have it. You can still develop it, um, you know, throughout your life. In order to get celiac disease though, you do need to have a genetic predisposition to celiac disease. Um, and this is through a specific type of gene. So it's the HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. Uh, they mean nothing to me and I'm sure they mean nothing to all of you as well, unless you're in genetics. Um, but you do need to have one of these genes in order to actually develop celiac disease. So about 50% of the population will carry one of these, um, one of these genes or both of these genes. Um, but not everybody then goes on to develop celiac disease. So it's essentially something needs to trigger the gene to switch on before you can develop celiac disease. So you could quite happily walk around your entire life with these genes and never develop celiac disease. And as far as the research says to date, even if you have one of these genes, 
if you don't have celiac disease, you do not need to avoid gluten because it's not doing damage to your intestines. What this does mean though, is that if you are diagnosed with celiac disease, it's a really good idea for all of your immediate family members to also get tested. So when I got diagnosed, I um, obviously told my family and my mom, my dad, my brothers, they all went and got tested for celiac disease as well uh, because it is really underdiagnosed and it is really misdiagnosed as well. So a lot of people get diagnoses for so many other things before um, celiac disease is found out. So it's, um, yeah, I guess a really good trigger if you are diagnosed to get your immediate family members tested as well. So my diagnosis journey was, I'm assuming quite similar to a lot of other people's in celiac disease where it is just so unknown for such a long period of time. And um, like I said before, potentially misdiagnosed in a lot of people. I actually didn't have any um, gut symptoms or not that I was aware of at that time. I, um, Looking back now, my gut used to be so loud um, and it used to literally wake me up in the middle of the night because it would be like gurgling. But I didn't think that that was a problem. Like I wasn't you know, constipated or I didn't have diarrhea or anything like that. It was just a loud gut. And I was like, that's just my stomach. It's always been like that. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, a year or so after being diagnosed and eating gluten-free that I realized that that sort of quietened it down a little bit. Um, but other than that, I really didn't have any gut symptoms, which I think is an important point to make because these symptoms that vary from person to person are pretty significant. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of people with celiac disease and I've worked as a dietitian with so many people with celiac disease and no story is the exact same. So I think it's, um, it's definitely something, you know, if you have got, and I'll go into the symptoms soon, but if you have got any of these symptoms and, you know, it, you're really resonating with all of the things that I say is that getting tested is worth it. Um, because it absolutely changed my life getting diagnosed. Um, and I feel so much better as a result of it. Anyway, so my main symptoms of celiac disease or my main symptoms that prompted me to go to the doctor was fatigue. Um, and to be honest, depression, which I was sort of avoiding at the time, um, which could have been just related to the insane fatigue. But when I say fatigue, I don't even know how to describe the fatigue. I literally would fall asleep. So at the point in time, it was the year... Well, actually, let's go back. Let's go back when I was in year 12. I was so tired all of the time. I would, um, you know, skip class and go sleep in the library. They had bin bags in the library. So I would go and sleep in the library for like any spares that I had, or, you know, if there was a way I could get out of class and either go to the sick bay or um, go to the library, I would do that and go sleep. And then I was at boarding school. So as soon as school finished, I remember I would come back to the boarding house and I would go have my afternoon tea or whatever. And then literally most afternoons, I would just sleep until um, it was time to go to dinner. So that was my experience. Um, but again, I didn't really think too much of it because I just thought I was tired. Like I didn't think that there was anything wrong with me. I just thought that I was just being a teenager and being tired. And then the year after I finished school, I went into uni and I started studying business and I hated it. Um, and I, I had a really rough year that year. It was There was a lot of things going on in my life um, personally. And I wasn't feeling well, um, both mentally and physically. And 
the the thing that I think prompted me to go to the doctor was that my sleep pattern was I would I remember I used to wake up when Dr. Phil like well, just before Dr. Phil was starting this midday TV so let's say like 11:45 I'd be waking up um oh was Dr. Phil one o'clock I don't I can't even, no I think it, I think Dr. Phil came first then Oprah um <laughs> this is embarrassing um so yeah I'd wake up at 11:45 ish uh just naturally I wouldn't set an alarm or anything but that would be the time I'd get up and then I would have brekkie whilst watching Dr. Phil. Uh, and then I would usually like, I'd try obviously do some uni work or go into uni, always try to avoid having like morning classes because that was just something that was so hard for me to get to. And if I did get to them often, I would actually fall asleep in them if they were in big lecture theaters. Uh, and this was when I was, like I said, studying business. So the lecture theatres I was in at this point in time were, you know, 400-seated um, lecture theatres. So it was quite easy to fall asleep as opposed to my dietetics when there's 20 people. Uh, so I would actually fall asleep in those lectures if I did go. Uh, if I had an opportunity, I would always have an afternoon nap. So maybe one to two hours in the afternoon. And then I would fall back to sleep at around 9 or 10 o'clock at night. So I was awake for five to six hours, probably maximum for at least six months prior to diagnosis, I think. And I was taking so much caffeine to try and keep me awake. I remember I worked in a casual job at a real estate agent on a Saturday and I had to have so much caffeine just to keep me awake in that office for six hours on a Saturday um, because I didn't know how else to stay awake. So that was my main symptom is this like, insane fatigue that just, just crippled me. And again, I didn't think at the time, now looking back, obviously there's something clearly wrong if that's happening. But at the time I just thought, you know, I'm a teenager. I was 17. I'm tired. Life is changing. As I said, there was a lot of personal things going on for me. I was in a really, um, yeah, really toxic relationship and it was, um, just a, not a great time for me. I just moved in, um, with him and it was, it was really stressful. So I thought that it was just a combination of all of these things uh, and didn't really think through the fact that this was not normal. So I finally said to my mom, I was like, I need to do something about this because this can't be right. And my mom, for those that don't know, is actually a dietitian as well. And I remember she got me to do like a food diary and I sent it through to her and she was like, oh, like you're eating okay. Like, I mean, I wasn't eating great. But um, she was like, you know, just go get a um, a blood test and see how your iron levels are because, you know, if you're iron deficient, then that might be why you're feeling quite tired. And so I went to the GP and I didn't have a, like a regular GP at the time. So I just went to, you know, a bulk billing one down the road and the GP obviously, you know, got my iron levels tested. Actually, I just remembered That's actually not true. So what I went to the GP with is I actually went to the GP and I remember saying, I think I have depression and I didn't, again, I thought this fatigue was depression. And again, it probably was, but I went to the GP and I said, I think I have depression. And the GP actually said to me, you should get your iron levels tested because maybe you're just fatigued and that's why. And I was like, great. That's what my mom said. Let's do that. Um, Albeit depression was definitely there. Uh, and anyway, got my iron levels tested and they were incredibly, incredibly low. And I can't remember what the figure was, but they were pretty low. And as I said, at this time I'd moved in with my partner at the time and he was a massive red meat eater. So I was eating so much red meat. It was ridiculous. Like 
I can't eat red meat because I ate so much then. Um, and my mum was like, that doesn't make sense. Like you're eating so much red meat. How come your iron levels are so low? And the GP had just said to me, she's like, oh, your iron levels are low here. Take, you know, an iron supplement and go on your merry way. And yeah, fortunately my mum sort of was like, no, 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 something's not right. And so she sent me back and said, you know, go get tested for celiac disease, do the blood test. Um, so I did that and the blood test came back and it was off the chart. Like the readings, I think they stopped reading. It's like greater than 150 or something like that. I was above the reading that was possible for celiac disease. Now I should explain the process of diagnosis for celiac disease before I go on. So the first step usually is um, getting your blood tests done. So the blood test that they will do for uh, testing for celiac disease, it's called the celiac serology. So it's measures of different antibodies. Um, So TTG and IgA are usually what they'll do um, in your blood, which are elevated in people with untreated celiac disease because of the reaction of gluten in the body. Now, it's important to note a couple of things about the um, blood tests and the diagnosis of celiac disease. If you are not eating enough gluten at the time of getting these blood tests done, then it's quite easy to get a false negative result. So if you're consuming gluten like once every you know couple of days or whatever, or you're not consuming gluten at all, you could be celiac and the blood test is just not showing it up because your um, antibody levels are not elevated because you are not consuming the gluten. So it's really, really, really important that if you have not been consuming gluten regularly, like daily um, in lead up to getting your diagnosis or getting tested for celiac disease, that you actually do a gluten challenge where you introduce gluten for a period of even like four to six weeks is what um, the gold standard is for this introduction of gluten. So it's, it is really important to do that. And it really sucks if you haven't been eating gluten. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about like, don't cut out things out of your diet before you get tested and whether you know you need to or not. Um, because reintroducing it, if you've excluded it and you're feeling a bit better is a pain in the ass. The other thing to note is that the blood test alone is not, um, how a diagnosis can be made. So you need to follow up the blood test with a small bowel biopsy. So this is done in an endoscopy. So under a twilight sort of, um, I don't even know what it's called, not anesthetic because it's not anesthetic, but you go into hospital and they will put a camera down into your stomach, into your small intestines, and they'll have a little look around, take a small biopsy of your um, small intestines, and then they can send that off to the lab to get these um, samples done and have a look at that villus atrophy that I was looking at before, sorry, talking about before. So I was fortunate that I was eating gluten in the lead up to my blood test, so I didn't need to change anything. But then my mum, I don't know why, but she decided that maybe it was before the blood test. She said to me, you know, you need to be continuing to eat gluten over the coming weeks until I had my biopsy because same thing, you need to be eating the gluten in order to get the correct um, diagnosis. So she told me to have, you know, gluten essentially breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day. And up until this point, like I said earlier, like I hadn't had any gut symptoms or anything. I was eating gluten every day, but not in huge amounts. So I then changed my diet and would have like toast for brekkie and then, you know, gluten containing crackers or pasta or more bread for lunch and then um, pasta or something like that or couscous or something 
for dinner. So I was having gluten three times a day for about four weeks between my blood test and my biopsy. And I remember I had a, I got my biopsies done the day after my final exam, which was for business law. And I remember walking into that exam and I walked into the exam hall and I walked straight to the bathroom. Sorry, put my pens down, walked straight to the bathroom, vomited my guts out, then went and sat down at my desk, did the exam, went and vomited my guts up again and then went home. So by that point in time, I did start to get some gut symptoms, but up until that point, I didn't have any gut symptoms. And the reason I say that is because the gluten challenge, if you are doing it, it is really shit um, if you are responding to it. But again, the again, the reason I say that is because it is worth it. I am so glad that I did that. I'm so glad that I got the correct diagnosis. Yes, it was an awful four weeks, but it's meant the rest of my life now is a much better Um, experience because I've got the correct diagnosis and I can treat it accordingly. Before I continue with my journey, I wanted to um, loop back to the symptoms of celiac disease for those who are playing along at home and wondering, you know, what are the symptoms seeing as I only had that one primary symptom. So the most common symptoms are gut-related symptoms. So it might be um, stomach pain, it might be diarrhea or constipation. So it's not necessarily... um, one or the other. It can be both of them. It um, it can change. Uh, but the gut symptoms are a predominant feature for a lot of people. Uh, then we have the fatigue. So that was the main symptom that I experienced. Uh, unexplained weight loss is another symptom. So the reason being here is because of that malabsorption. When you have that villous atrophy and you're not absorbing your nutrients, you're also not potentially absorbing a lot of calories as well. So um, it can be unexplained weight loss, particularly in children. It might be growth problems or stunted growth. Uh, Vomiting is certainly one. A really interesting one is fertility problems. Uh, I think it's about 6% of people with, and this might be an American statistic, but 6% of people with fertility problems have undiagnosed celiac disease. And I've certainly heard of a lot of people only picking up on their um, celiac disease when they realize that they're having fertility problems. Uh, For me personally, the one thing I noticed, and I was on oral contraceptives at the time, but the one thing I noticed about a year after my diagnosis, my uh, menstrual cycle went from... So my days on my period would be typically before diagnosis was about one to two days of bleeding. And then about a year after diagnosis, when I'd sort of healed my gut and everything, I hate that term healed your gut, but it actually is the right term in celiac disease. Um, So yeah, once my gut had healed, I had gone back to sort of like a normal sort of five day cycle or five day bleeding um, part of my cycle. So uh, yeah, I think that I probably had a been trying for a baby at that time, I think I probably would have had fertility problems as well. Uh, The other ways that you can, like other symptoms could be, like I said, the iron deficiency earlier. The other uh, mineral that tends to be poorly absorbed in celiac disease is calcium. So for a lot of people, they might pick up on it because of early onset osteoporosis or lots of bone breaks, um, which is something that I did have. I think I broke four bones in my childhood. So uh, potentially could have had something to do with that. 
Uh, and then one other really unique one is dermatitis herpiformis, which is just a type of skin condition, which is unique to celiac disease. So I can't describe it because I'm not a dermatologist, so I don't know how to describe what it looks like. Um, but you can certainly Google it and have a look. And it's, yeah, it's quite unique to celiac disease, that one. It's important to note if you do have these symptoms, there are also so many other things and other conditions that fall into similar symptoms as well. And this is why it's so misdiagnosed is because, you know, IBS could fit all of these symptoms or, you know, a lot of other conditions could fall into these. Uh, but I think it's worthwhile bringing up with your GP because it's getting more and more common and getting spoken about more and more and GPs are picking up on it more and more. Uh, but there is still some GPs out there who, like my GP at the time, um, sort of just don't really think that that option through. So I think that if you are experiencing these symptoms, it's worthwhile going to your GP and saying, hey, do you think it's worthwhile getting tested for celiac disease? Keeping in mind that you do need to be having gluten in the lead up. Okay. Anyway, back to my story. I got, I went in for my biopsy and I remember speaking to the um, gastroenterologist before I went in. He actually had a celiac disorder daughter himself. Um, and anyway, I went in and I came out and he said to me, he's like, I've sent off your biopsies for, um, testing, but I'm 99% confident that you have celiac disease. Your gut is destroyed. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. No wonder I feel so awful. Um, so he sent off obviously the biopsies and they came back positive for celiac disease. So pretty much as soon as I walked out of that, um, of the hospital that day, I went gluten-free and the treatment for celiac disease, for those that don't know, is a hundred percent gluten-free diet for life. There is no other treatment, unfortunately, at this point in time. Maybe one day we will, but who knows? There's not been great results when it comes to um, the studies that they've begun on other treatments. So I do think that we are looking down the barrel of the gun of gluten-free treatment for life for at least the life of all of us listening. Maybe one day our future generations won't need to and there'll be some sort of drug or whatever they can take. It is super important to note that if you are celiac and you are obviously eating a gluten-free diet, that you do need to be incredibly strict to follow that gluten-free diet for life because any consumption of gluten can um, cause that damage to your villi and not treating celiac disease properly. So not following a gluten-free diet for life does have health consequences. So that being, again, fertility problems, um, nutrient malabsorption, but it also does increase your risk of certain types of gastrointestinal cancers as well. So it's really, really, really important that if you are celiac, that you are strict with your gluten-free diet always. Like you can't have a cheat day or those sorts of things or just like, you know, a little bit won't hurt. I hear this far more frequently than I would like to, that people are like, oh, you know, I'm not super strict with it. I'm like, oh my God, that's not an option. Please, 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 please be super strict with it. Um, you can't have gluten again ever once you have that diagnosis. And I don't mean to say this in a way that like if you accidentally consume gluten, that is bound to happen. It happened to me on multiple occasions. Um, and in, particularly in those first few years when you're learning, it's a huge shift. If you've been somebody who consumes gluten naturally and hasn't even thought about your gluten consumption before, the shift to going gluten-free is a massive lifestyle shift. So you are going to have incidences where you consume gluten and 
obviously that's not ideal, but it's also okay. You don't need to stress out because again, the gut does heal itself when you are eating gluten-free. So it takes a little while, but it will heal itself. Um, But in saying that, don't deliberately go and consume gluten or don't think that you can get away with having, you know, a a bite of this or a bit of that from time to time because it does increase your risk of um, health conditions long term. And even things like osteoporosis, where you're having brittle bones and those sorts of things, really, really, really important. If you only take away one thing from this episode, if you are a celiac and you are not consuming a strict gluten-free diet. Um, please, 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 please consider being more strict with it. The fortunate thing I think nowadays, though, is that it is much easier than it was when I got diagnosed, like, what was it, 12 years ago or something, that um, it, it there is a lot of gluten-free options out there on the market now. A lot of cafes and restaurants are much more willing and much more knowledgeable and aware of celiac disease and of a gluten-free diet. So it is a lot easier and I only see that improving with time. Um, Travel is probably the hardest thing that I've personally experienced Um, and it depends on the countries that you're going to. But yeah, going to different countries is a real challenge and I think that's probably another episode altogether. So I'm not going to go into that too much. The biggest piece of advice that I have for people who eat out frequently or, you know, love eating out and want to continue doing that after celiac disease is to have confidence in speaking up for yourself and for having concern about the food that's, you know, put on your plate. So to begin with, it caused me so much anxiety. It was the most mortifying thing. My mum used to you know, bring attention to, I hated it. I hated it. My mum used to be like, oh, is that gluten-free? Is that celiac? Is that blah, blah, blah. And I was so mortified that like so much attention was put onto me and to the food that I was getting. And I just wanted to disappear. It was just this mortifying experience eating out and I hated it and I didn't want to do it. Um, but I guess over the years since diagnosis, you do get more confident. And if I had one piece of advice, it's, um, well, I think I just said that before, but this is my second piece of advice. Um, it is that be confident that you can speak what you need and you're not a pain in the ass for asking for what you need for a medical condition. Like celiac disease is a medical condition. You're not being a pain in the ass for doing it. Even if people make you feel like you are, you are absolutely not a pain in the ass for asking for gluten-free and for asking for them to double check. Or if they don't sound confident asking for them to ask somebody else, um, I do it all the time. Again, fortunately now restaurants are much more knowledgeable about it. And it's been quite a few years since I've had an experience where I've gone, oh, I don't trust them. Um, the other thing is you get really good. And I, I don't know whether this is just me, but you get really good at knowing what is gluten-free just from looking at it as well. And I know that's not a really like, that's not an evidence-based thing to say. And I don't recommend just judging from your eye, but I can tell gluten-free bread from non-gluten-free bread and even like the really good one from just looking at it. There's so many things I look at that and I'm like, "Mm -mm." but no, I wouldn't suggest that because actually gluten-free is getting better. And I've had definitely had things where, for example, like tempura batters and those sorts of things where I've been like given it and I'm like, are you sure this is gluten-free? And are you sure that, you know, you're using a separate fryer in the kitchen? And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, oh, and I get so nervous eating it. And then when obviously I'm fine a few hours later, I'm like, okay, okay, that was fine. Like, trust them. Um, I think for me, the thing that 
really tells me whether I can trust them or not is their confidence in the response. So that's something that I've really, I guess, um, learned to judge. So if I say, you know, do you have this gluten-free? And they're like, uh, yes, it's gluten-free. I'm like, well, can you go check? Because uh, that to me is a sign that they're not sure. Um, and if you're working at a, a restaurant or uh, you're a waitress or um, waiter um, at a restaurant, what I would suggest is if you don't know, just be upfront and say, I'm not sure. I'm going to go check with the chef or I'm going to go check with my manager or whatever it is and go and have a look. The other thing is to let the person who is celiac to check the ingredients themselves. So for example, one of my good friends, um, Emily, she um, always orders chai lattes when we go out and she always asks to check the ingredients list. And that's not being rude to ask to check the ingredients list. So if you are working in a cafe and somebody says, can I have a look at the jar of whatever it is or the ingredients list? They're not being rude by saying that. Please just let them have a look so that they can see for themselves and feel confident in themselves that they can have that product. In terms of recovery from celiac disease until I started feeling better, I think it was probably about 12 months after that I really noticed that my energy levels had returned. I definitely think, and this is, um, there is a little bit of evidence evidence around sort of um, depression and psychiatric conditions and celiac disease. Um, and I do think that there was certainly an improvement in my mood uh, about a year after. And again, that was probably related to an improvement in my energy levels and my ability to function on a day-to-day basis. Um, but it, it does take time to see that improvement. I don't think I would have really seen any improvement maybe in the first three to six months. And then from six months to 12 months, I really did notice a big difference. Um, and then I went, I think it would have been about 12 to 18 months. I went and got a follow-up biopsy as you should do if you are celiac, um, if you have celiac disease, sorry, um, you should go and get a follow-up biopsy just to check that the gut has healed and that that villi has grown back, um, and make sure that you are, I guess, not getting any gluten in your diet that you're not aware of as well. Um, so yeah, for me, that was about a year down the track. Uh, long-term wise, I haven't really experienced any long-term, um, effects or symptoms. I guess the one thing I did notice that changed that's not, um, that's not, I guess, recorded or related to celiac disease is I had a condition called, um, or an allergy called cold urticaria. So it's an allergic reaction to the cold. So I would go into like, you know, the fridge or freezer section of Woolworths or even just like, you know, Kmart where the air conditioning is quite cold. And I would break out in rashes and hives all over my body. Um, and, you know, if I put ice on my body, like, you know, if I injured my ankle and I put ice on it, I'd get this massive swelling um, as a result and hives as a result of the ice. And the one thing I did notice is that within 12 months of um, going gluten-free, that, that I've never had that condition since. I've never had that allergic reaction since. And I actually spoke to um, my immunologist I was seeing at the time about it. And he was like, no, 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 it's not related. And then and that was at the time of diagnosis, sorry. And then when I got about a year later, I said to him again, I was like, it's gone. Like I just, I, I haven't had it since. I can put ice on my skin and it doesn't swell. And he was like, oh, I'll have a look into it. And I think there was like a case report of like two people um, where it was related to celiac disease and did improve. So there is certainly a lot, I think, that we still need to learn around celiac disease and other sort of um, symptoms and conditions that tie into it. Uh, on that note, t- 
type 1 diabetes and thyroid um, genetic thyroid conditions are on a similar or same gene as celiac disease. So if you are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, it's always a good idea to keep an eye out for these celiac symptoms. Um, and if you have been diagnosed, particularly as a child, as someone with type 1 diabetes, um, and you're still sort of, as you know, type 1 diabetes is typically diagnosed under the age of like 20. Um, so if you are under 20, keeping an eye out for symptoms of type 1 diabetes as well. Anyway, that is my experience of celiac disease and I guess a bit of a rundown around celiac disease. Uh, as I said, I can do a follow-up episode to this answering uh, more questions that you might have. So if you do have questions, feel free to yeah send me a DM on Instagram or um, shoot an email, however it is that is best for you to get in contact. And um, yeah, we might do a follow-up episode, talk a bit about travel, living with it now, um, and answer any more of your questions. So I might do that um, in the coming weeks on Instagram. So keep an eye out for a question box on that. Um, otherwise, I hope you guys have an amazing week. hope you learned something about celiac disease and take care of yourself. Bye.